Hello, hello, hello. Welcome to the 37th edition of Where They At. My name is Nabate Isles, and it's always a pleasure to have remarkable guests on my show. And now this is a special edition of Where They At. This is the second musician. Now, usually I have retired athletes on the show, but this is the second musician I have who is not retired. Before I introduce this gentleman, I want to let you all know to make sure you check out past episodes of Where They At on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Amazon Podcasts, Google Podcasts, iHeartRadio, Stitcher, and also Catropolis Radio Network. That's Catropolis.net. So now introducing this gentleman, um, he's a hero of mine. He's someone that I grew up admiring as a professional musician and still admire to this day. He's one of the most prolific musicians of the past four decades. He is uh, he came out of the the very, very royal music family of the Marsalis family uh, in New Orleans and came up with his brother, Winter Marcellus, in the early 80s with their talent and with their originality. And uh, this man has done everything from the standpoint of playing jazz, classical, playing hip hop, playing, uh, composing film scores, uh, being a, being an actor, being a, a, a band leader for The Tonight Show, and like so many things that he has done. He's a true Renaissance man in music and in creativity in general. He's a three-time Grammy Award winner there's so much to talk about with this gentleman, not just about music, but life, black culture, sports, society, everything. It is my pleasure and honor to introduce the one and only Mr. Branford Marcellus on the 37th edition of Where They At. How are you, sir? And that was too long, but thank you. <laughs> no, you deserve that. You lucky it wasn't even longer. I could have did the whole show like, like talking about you and your accomplishments. <laughs> Fine. <laughs> well, yes, indeed, sir. I mean, while there's there's a lot to talk about. First of all, the effect of of what COVID nineteen is is you know is affected so many families, and my my condolences on on the loss of the patriarch of your family, an icon in jazz and in music education, especially in New Orleans, by the name of Mr. Ellis Marsalis. So my condolences, and and talk about um. You know, for the those in the audience that don't know who he was and what he was all about, please um talk on how he was such an influence on you and an influence on the culture in general. Well, he was a great influence on us. Uh, he taught us how to think. Uh, mm-hmm. Would never really. I mean, he would say things about like how life is, but his he always kind of played on both sides of it. Mm-hmm. He didn't really <clears throat> say like life is this, you know. It's like life is this until you receive data that makes you realize that it's not that. Then it just becomes something else. You never get caught in a place where you're like stuck in an ideal, mm-hmm. especially when you finally grow into a place where you realize that it's only fifty percent correct or sometimes flat out wrong. And that was good. That was good to 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 have that kind of advice. Where uh, you know we live in a very strange time now, where people are willing to take adults to task for something they said when they were 18, which is absurd. Mm-hmm. And because I'm pretty sure that the people who are making those accusations are not the same people at 35 that they were at 18 or 17. But this this is a certain kind of puritanical litmus test that goes on in the air, and uh, I I was lucky to mm-hmm. have. Uh, been dissuaded from that by my dad in an early age 
and the rest of it, I mean, if they're interested, they can Google him. He's, there's all these videos of him playing and videos of him talking. He was a great thinker. Uh, you know, he was, a, and he was a good friend as a dad. He was cool. He's a cool dude. Everybody loved him. Yes. Well, yes, indeed. And, and, uh, you know, um, you know, and, and, and with COVID-19 and everything and, and how, how are you doing with dealing with, cause now it's just the, the spikes are going up. You have people getting infected where they literally say they've done everything, washed their hands, sanitized their hands. Like they wore a mask and like, still it's, it seems like this is not stopping. Um, how, how are you doing with this situation and how are you protecting yourself? I wash my hands. I wear a mask. I have gloves. And mm. I avoid a prolonged uh, visits inside of anywhere. I think that's the ultimate thing. Uh, you just can't hang out in restaurants. Mm-hmm. The restaurants have really, really high ceilings. Or if they have those plexiglass baffles with the high ceilings, then maybe. But I just don't. You just embrace realities. I mean, it's, it's, you know, when you see films about our documentaries about people talking about living in war zones, mm-hmm. you just have to modify what you do because not doing that can get you killed. And sometimes even doing it can get you killed, but you have to give it a good faith effort. And uh, right. New Yorkers have been really good with that. When I go to New York, ain't nobody playing around. Mm-hmm. They remember. They remember what it was like in the early in the, in, in in March and April. Man. Some people die in a week or some crazy thing like that, or a day. I don't really remember. It was insane. Mm-hmm. But uh, in other places, yeah, it, it becomes absurd arguments about freedom. Mm-hmm. And, uh, I mean, I, I I believe if if somebody's really determined to not wear one, then okay. Don't wear it. And I just will make sure that I minimize contact with those people. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, I, I'm not really into the whole, you know, I think New York City is different because it is such a confined space. You have people living in apartments and in elevators and really confined spaces, restaurants, all these things are really small mm-hmm. and they have to be more mindful. And the government, uh, the city government, and the state government, they, they're insistent. Uh, but in other places, like North Carolina, where I live, I mean, the city I live in, people are mask wearers. But every city around there, they're like talking about their freedom. So go be free. <laughs> right. I mean, right. Darwin hit the nail on the head. So you know what I mean? <laughs> you did. So I'm a little fittest. Right. If you think it's worth the, ch- the chance? You should do that. Mm-hmm. Flying. I mean, the chances are really good that I could get on a plane and fly anywhere and not get sick. Just like catching the flu. Because the people like to compare it to the flu, except that transmissibility seems to be 25 times or more greater than the flu. That's right. You That's can right. go to the gym and do all of these things and not get the flu. And then you can get it. And right. I've, known, I've never known anyone to actively pursue getting the flu though. I've never known anyone uh, fighting for the right to expose themselves to the flu virus. And uh, it's just one of those things where I think if people really want to fight for that right, like the people in the in the in the West, in the Upper West, you know, North Dakota, South Dakota, 
you know, and it was a motorcycle week in Sturgis, South Dakota, with four hundred thousand people hanging right, out. Right, yeah. do right. Do it. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. do it and take a chance. And most of the people won. Mm-hmm. You know, I don't think that a hundred thousand people got sick from it, but thousands of people got sick from it, and some of those people lost. That's so right. You think that it is an acceptable chance? You should do it. Mm-hmm. Yep. And then it affects all their family, loved ones. And you know what? They may not end up being a fatality, but their their wife could be a fatality or their husband could. You, you just never know. Yeah, but you know that's, that's the whole point. You don't know. Mm-hmm. Could all be fine. That's so, right. So the point is, is that, you know, am I willing to risk it? Mm-hmm. And I'm just not willing to, to, to take the risk. And I am not, unlike the people who where I live, the people who are not wear mask wearers are mad at me for wearing a mask, which I've never really understood because my thing is, it's like, okay, I'm not mad at you for not wearing one. Why are you mad? Because I'm wearing one. <laughs> right, right. You know, well, this is a hoax. And I said, okay, fair enough. Let's, let's agree that you're right. It is a hoax. Why are you mad at me for wearing a mask? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I have not said you need to put on a mask to be around me, but you're mad because I'm wearing a mask. And I'm just trying to figure out. So as it is with all of these things, what we try to do as human beings is oftentimes educated human beings try to intellectualize deep-seated emotional feelings that cannot be intellectualized, that almost cannot be described. It's almost like if you can describe what love is, then it's not love. You know what I mean? So if you can describe a certain kind of fear or a certain kind of ignorance, people would say, well, how can you vote for, for this guy? He does this, that. And then so they give you some stupid answer. Oh, well, you know, I'm a businessman. And it's, it's, it's you know, for the COVID thing. Oh, you know, freedom. It's just a thing. Some people, and I really believe this. My dad said this to me a long time ago. I mean, a long time ago when it made no sense to me. Sometime <laughs> in my 20s. This is where you know, son. I mean, people will go through extraordinary, people will go to extraordinary lengths to avoid going home, putting a gun in their mouth and pulling the trigger. And I was like, man, what the hell? What? <laughs> what the hell is that? What, what do you mean? He goes, hey, man, every do- everything somebody tells you is just what they tell you. It doesn't mean that it's true. In my experience is just like most people, they have a whole social act that they put on. And when they go home, it's a different thing. Mm-hmm. Some people, they got to hang out in bars. Some people, they become sports fanatics and they become absolute fanatics because without that, pow. And I'm like, man, that's stupid. But now I'm 60. <laughs> and I ain't 20 no more. And I've lived enough life and been around a bunch of people and looking at this COVID thing and looking at how certain people become violent towards people, like they go in the store and they say, you have to wear a mask and they punch them. Mm-hmm. Uh, clear that this thing registers to certain people in really deep seated ways that they can't articulate and haven't thought about. Wow. Kind of like, you know, the, the fascinating thing about cultural racism is that the people who use it don't even know that they're using it because it's ingrained. That's right. So when you so when you confront them in an aggressive manner, 
they don't have to deal with their behavior because they're defending themselves against you. Mm -hmm. So you become aggressive. Well, they've already become aggressive, whether it's mm -hmm. passive aggressive or like, so then you become aggressive and then they become aggressive. And now you are the perpetrator. Dig. Something my dad used to say. If, if you can find a way through humor or irony to point out their behavior to them, they have to deal with their behavior and not deal with their behavior, but you don't give them an out. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And this has forget this is relationships. Mm -hmm. You know, if, if if you if some if someone points out one of your faults, the first thing you do is throw out an insult to deflect the fault because you don't want to deal with it. Right. You don't want to look at yourself. Mm -hmm. You know, the more I think about that, you could be right. You say, I don't need to hear this from you. That's why you blah, blah, blah. What about is it starts? Well, you always, you know, whatever. Sleep with the light on or you got to turn the TV on, which has nothing to do with the original discussion or complaint. But if I can get this fight going, then I don't have to deal with what the other person is telling. Me. It's real slick how people can do that. Right. Right. In the modern phrase for it is what about is because the whole idea of it is to deflect and distract. Let's not talk about whatever this unpleasant thing is. Mm -hmm. So if you can find a way to keep your cool and keep it on the subject matter, there's a possibility of progress. Otherwise, you give people the out that they need to just perpetuate the behavior. True that. Wow. This is the great brand from Marcellus, one of the great musicians of our generation and beyond on the 37th edition of Where They At. My name is Nabate Isles. And, and Mr. Marcellus wanted to ask you, it's very, it's very interesting about COVID-19 and the effect on the jazz, on the, on the music world, but especially the jazz world. So um, it's forced the jazz world to, to, to look to be more creative and innovative which many musicians aren't really looking to be that from the stand, not musically, but like with marketing and with getting the music out there, getting more ears and getting more uh, people exposed to the music and making it more accessible from that standpoint. Yeah, that, that doesn't work. I mean, I remember when this first started, there were all these videos of people playing because mm -hmm. they, they thought there was an opportunity. Well, mm. I mean, before the internet, you had in the United States <clears throat> potentially 75 million record buyers. Yep. And if you want to be generous, 100 million record buyers, but it's more like 75 million. Mm -hmm. So the question when you make a record, whether it's a popular record, you know, or not a popular record, is how am I going to get people to hear this music? I mean, one way is, is the radio. And that's why the radio stations had so much power because they could make or break a particular artist because there's always an audience that I call it the ready-made audience. They turn on the radio station and they basically say, tell me what to go buy and I'll go buy it. Now, the, the, the downside to that audience is that it's always like a short-lived victory with few exceptions. You know, mm -hmm. Prince is an exception, Stevie Wonder is an exception. If you think about the hundred records that you heard in any given year that were big, 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 big hits, and then those people never had hits again. <laughs> like they call them one hit wonders. That's right. Like the, you, you catch a song, you catch lightning in the bottle, but you can't repeat it. Uh, most of the 
performers that exceed that. They, they tour and they're really good players and they have really great and exciting tours and the tours drive record sales. Mm-hmm. Then you have other people who don't tour at all and don't do very well. And then you have like jazz or classical music, which doesn't have a mechanism to drive record sales. Mm-hmm. So the question was always, well, how are you going to get these 75 million people to even be interested in, in you? What the internet did was make it worse because now it's a billion people. Yep. So how do you get a billion people? Or well, how do you? How do people get to find you? How can they find you? You go on the internet. Do I ever go on the internet saying, I'm looking for something new? No, I don't. I'm mm-hmm. no. So some people have a song on TikTok or a song on YouTube. Some kids get discovered on YouTube. That's always like, 0.1% of all the people that are out there. Right. So I never, I didn't even waste my time trying to figure out anything. I mean, I have all this music that I can learn, like the stuff back there. I have all this music that I can learn. That you I learning? Always, you don't want to know. That I always, <laughs> that I always wanted to play and never had a chance to play. Because uh, mm. it's really hard. And mm-hmm. it's hard to practice. Okay, since, you know, this piece called Prisms of Light, and it's written by Augusta Reed Thomas for... Oh, Eastman. Yeah, that's my alma mater. Eastman's going to be... Yeah, Prism yeah, exactly. Augusta Reed Thomas. Mm-hmm. It's really technically advanced. Mm-hmm. And it took me two months to learn. Mm-hmm. So when was I going to have two months to just reflect and work on a piece like that? Oh, never. I was always on two. I had two weeks at home. I had stuff to do in the house. I had mail piled up that I could finally open and get rid of things. Some of the things I'm finding letters from 2014. So I've taken advantage of this time, uh, done stuff around the house, got stuff done that would have just been prolonged and mm-hmm. mm-hmm. prolonged. And, but, but uh, so I practice things that don't have a practical application in my profession, but I'm not trying to use the internet to keep my name out there. There's some Joey Calderazzo, great piano player. Yes, indeed, in your group. I went to Joey's house because he lives in Durham too. And Mm -hmm. we would do Facebook Live things. But man, that's just mostly for the community. That's mostly for people who know who we are. There's no new people trolling around looking for Joey or looking for me. And I already know that. I mean, there's one guy who decided to do Charlie Parker songs wearing a chicken hat. And in his mind, he thought, I don't know what he thought, you know, because Charlie Parker's nickname was Bird. Yeah. So he wore this chicken hat while he played. And I was like, what does he think? What is he? Who is this going to appeal to? I mean, it's not. It's just, so all of these people who are trying to come up with all of these, it's, it's just, man, we're not working. And we're not going to work till there's a vaccine. So uh, all along, I said we weren't going to work until 2022. And I was accepting of that. And again, you know, I don't, I love playing. I accept touring. Some people love touring. The people who love touring, they have to be alone with themselves or at home with themselves. That's going to be hard for them. Mm-hmm. For me, I haven't had a break like this since like the recession of 2008. And that was only like six months. This one is long. And I've had a chance to reflect on myself, slow down, you know, think about things. It's been a good time. Oh, absolutely. And, and it's been a melancholy time, but I don't think that the internet's going to do anything 
to help our situation. Because mm-hmm. ain't, nobody, ain't nobody looking for us. And, you know, I'm cool with that. I'm cool with that. I mean, when you when you play it, when you play a minority music, that's what I call it. It's like being a minority. Yeah. Like when you play a minority music, we play this music. You play this music. There's a small number of people who play it. There's an even smaller number of people who listen to it, and an even smaller number of people who actually like it. Ooh. So how are you going to expand that base? You're not. You're not going to expand it. You're not going to have a bunch of people. Who are suddenly not working and saying, Well, I've always wanted to like learn love instrumental jazz. So I'm gonna start listening. Maybe one person, two people, a hundred people in a country with, with 225 million people. You know, it's just like this is the reality of it. So I never really used it as like this. I never thought of it as, as an opportunity to expand anything for me other than myself. This mm-hmm. was an opportunity for me to expand to try to become a better person, try to become a better musician, try to become a better saxophone player. You know, have my kids get to know me because they're, they're teenagers now and they never really knew me because I was always gone. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, that's what, that's what I've been doing with this. I, I don't think, uh, I think it just is what it is. And one day it'll stop it and all that other stuff will start again. And hopefully I won't fall back into the same ruts that you fall into when you're constantly on the go. We'll see. Well, and um, and what do you think of the trajectory of the music right now? Because there's a lot going on with, you know, the jazz hip hop movement, a lot of fusion going on, kind of like in the 80s with you working with Sting and Phil Collins and Bruce Hornsby and, you know, expanding yourself genre wise. And that was able to give you more popularity. Um, What do you think of like now with the trajectory of the music and where it's going sonically, but also with um, expression, true expression? Well, I mean, you know, my grandmother could express true and she had a fourth grade education. I don't really put a premium on expression per se. Mm-hmm. Uh, what I put a premium on is a uh, vocabulary. Mm-hmm. You know, like how does your expression sound? Uh, like I've used this opportunity to learn a lot of 20s music. I didn't know anything about the 20s music really few peripheral things but I've really kind of delved in the 20s music so now I have more sounds available in my sound library to express myself uh, I mean I was never really a jazz fusion person I never really considered the music to be jazz anything but I dug the music like when I was listening to Herbie Hancock play with Headhunters in 1973 mm-hmm. And then some older people, like my dad's generation, would call it jazz fusion. I mean, I didn't like jazz. So I didn't hear any jazz. <laughs> I remember you said Earth, Wind, and Fire, all that stuff. <laughs> jazz sucks. This is great. Well, this yep. can't be jazz. Yep. yep. And, and, and uh, as I got older, and my brain got more mature, and I could start to hear what jazz actually is, I started to appreciate jazz more. But when I think back, and I still vividly remember all of those songs on Thrust and on Headhunters and on Sunlight and all those records, mm-hmm. and that's, that's not jazz. You know, most jazz musicians didn't have the kind of musical background, especially the older guys that grew up in the 20s and the 30s, to do what Herbie did with electric instruments and what Chick Corea did. Mm-hmm. I mean, 
that stuff was amazing. I never thought of it as, as, as jazz. Mm-hmm. I mean, it, it's 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 a generic kind of jazz for people who think of jazz in a generic fashion. But if you actually do like a deep dive, like a jazz deep dive, if you think about the history of jazz piano and you start with, you know, uh, Jelly Roll Morton and you know, Willie the Lion Smith Mm-hmm. And uh, James P. Johnson. That's Waller. All those guys. That's mm-hmm. Waller. You mm-hmm. start working your way up. Red Garland and all these. Ooh. And a lot of what's considered jazz. Not, it's not really jazz at all. It, it's, it's this really light version of it that's meant to appeal to people who don't mind jazz as long as it has a beat that makes them feel comfortable. A beat that they know. Because the jazz beat is complicated because the jazz beat comes out of the Pentecostal church. So the, the, the jazz beat itself is that thing. That's the beat. Mm-hmm. Except the jazz drum set is more rhythmically fluid where in contemporary beats, they're more static, where you have a snare drum on two and four and fills with the pulse, mm-hmm. like that R&B kind of pulse. Jazz comes from the R&B pulse, but the pulse is almost invisible. You have to feel it because guys don't play the drum. You listen to Rick records in the, in the 40s, all the drums were playing. On the, they, they imply that now. It's there. And the drummers in the, in the 50s and 60s would still play that beat, but it was much softer because it was blended with the acoustic bass. Right, right. Mm-hmm. And I can always tell when modern drummers don't know that stuff because there's just this empty hole in the middle of the music. <clears throat> or it's just an overabundance of like gospelchops.com. Mm-hmm. So, uh, I mean, it's, I, it doesn't have to be jazz for me to like it. Yeah. Number one. I don't know why it has to be jazz for them to like it or to feel like it's legitimate. That ain't my problem. Though. So, yeah, I don't really think of most of that music as jazz. Buckshot with punk, not jazz. Right, right. I mean, it had nothing to do with jazz. Uh, playing on Shanice Williams' I, uh, I Love Your Smile, it was, there's no mm-hmm. jazz in there. No jazz in there. I, I didn't grow up playing jazz. I grew up playing R&B. Right. Fight the power, you know what I'm saying? Right. You know? Mm-hmm. And, you know, well, Fight the Power was different because, you know, Hank Shockley and them, they had a different way. You know? <laughs> he had me do one R&B solo, one jazz solo, and one just free out there solo. Mm. When I was finished, he said, I said, so which one are you going to pick? He said, pick all three. And he threw all three of the faders up at the same time. And I was like, damn, that shit's crazy. But it sounds really good. <laughs> you know, so that was the power sack version. Mm. But then when they did the song, I I, I think there was like more like the R&B-ish kind of one. But they did all kinds of things to, to, mm. to mess with that. You know, Eric Sadler was one of the uh, producers. He's incredible with a with a uh, S nine hundred sampler, he he did incredible mm-hmm. things. Mm-hmm. Uh, but but a lot of that stuff, I mean, playing with the Grateful Dead, I mean, they're not jazz bands. Yeah, yeah. You know, they play what they play, and I'm lucky enough to have grown up exposed to that music first. So in those situations, my go to vocabulary is their vocabulary, not a jazz vocabulary. So when you hear me play, I don't play jazz solos on those. I play solos that are appropriate to the sound of the music. That's right. That's right. But that's how I feel about all of that stuff. 
And I mean, and there's other musicians, they use the word jazz. I mean, you know, some people think, you know, like, you know, when you say jazz, they say Grover Washington. Now, the interesting thing is, is that when, when Grover first came out, he was on the R&B charts. Mm-hmm. Yep. When I bought those records, you know, because the, the drummer from those early records, Idris Muhammad's the New Orleans guy. You know, right, yeah. And, uh, Ralph McDonald on percussion. I mean, I love those records. Bob James played keyboards on those records. Mm-hmm. I didn't consider those jazz records. I still love them. Yeah. But my dad dug them. My dad was like, man, this is kind of hip. And I think so. He goes, is that Idris? Oh my God, Idris Muhammad. Yes, right. We grew up together. I mean, it was like, so, you know, so, but I didn't. So then at some point, was it the late 80s? I don't know. I think it was the late 80s. This started this whole, this became smooth jazz. And, and the radio station in New York, 101.9. CD 101.9. <laughs> it, it, was, it wasn't lost on you that the, the advertisements they used, Miles, uh, Al Jarreau, and George Vincent. Mm-hmm. But if you listen to the station, they didn't play any of them. They didn't, right? It was like Kenny G, Dave Cause, all those cats. So and they stuff. Used, yep. This is even before Kenny. This is before Kenny, but oh. yeah, that was the music. That was the style. They used those three guys to legitimize it, like the idea that it's jazz, and then proceeded to not really play any of their music. So I just went, okay, I get what that is. It's fine. It's a marketing thing. Mm-hmm. It's a marketing thing. And it, and it did really well for a while. Clear Channel was just everywhere, exploding mm-hmm. ads. And, and then the financial crisis hit, and the whole thing blew up, and all of it just disappeared. Yeah, right. You know, right. And it's around in pockets. There's a station in New Orleans. There's a station in Raleigh. But it, it will never be what it was at that time where it was just everywhere. Smooth jazz stations were everywhere. Mm-hmm. And they had demographic. You know, mm-hmm. a demographic. You know, 25 to 50, average salary, $100,000 a year, the whole thing. They had it all mapped out. They, they knew what they were doing. But it was more of a business thing. It had nothing to do with art. It was a commerce reality, commercial reality. Yep. And, and, oh. and. Mm-hmm. Go ahead. And, and and yeah, and, and and when now, what do you think of um, who are the young cats out there now that you think are kind of like um, being able to show that vocabulary and being able to be effective in what they're saying, and also help kind of push the message of the music along? Well, I, I don't think about I don't I never think about pushing the message of the music because there's nobody to push it to. Mm. I just think that it's a myth that we need to stop, that there's an audience out there waiting for jazz. Okay. Uh, the thing that drove the success when we played with Winton's band <clears throat> was mostly that he was 20 years old. The Young Lions movement, yep. Mm-hmm. That prolifically, it was unheard of. So for him to be on CBS uh the CBS, what was it called? CBS Sunday Morning. Sunday Morning, yeah, back in 80, yeah. Peralt was still doing it. Mm-hmm. You know, Billy Taylor propped him up and got him on there, and he did a 60 Minutes thing. But it really had nothing to do with how good he was. It's kind of like, you know, that kid, uh, I never remember names, Joey Alexander. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like Joey Alexander did, got ahead of 60 Minutes piece. He was 12 or 13. And he's playing it. It's incredible. Mm-hmm. And Matthew Whitaker too. Matthew Whitaker as well. Recently, yeah, yeah. was on it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I said, yeah, you know. And I did an interview, and the guy said, "What do you think about Joey Alexander?" I said, "Well, he's, he's really good. He might be great one day." 
And then the writer says, well, some people say that, that he's great now. I said, well, they don't know what they're talking about. Mm-hmm. And then he says, uh, so you really down on him? I said, I'm not down on him. Don't misconstrue the facts. Let me ask you a question. Suppose he was 22 and not 12. Would he have been on 60 Minutes? Mm-hmm. And then it was like silence. And he says, well, I said, yeah, I know. The answer is no. So if he were 22, he'd just be another good jazz player. He's not a great jazz player, but what makes him great is the circus act. Look mm-hmm. at this 12-year-old kid who can write Mozart symphonies. They're prodigies. It has nothing to do with the music. And then the guy says, well, you know, Mozart wrote symphonies when he was six. I said, not good ones until he was 21. <laughs> That's right. That's right. And that is the opinion of the majority of musicologists. But as a regular person in the United States, the circus quality is the thing. It works for a little while. Mm-hmm. And if Joey continues to develop and listen to music, he's going to be a really great player. If he kind of rests on his laurels because he was on 60 Minutes, he's just going to be what he is now. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. and every year he gets older, it becomes less impressive. So the idea, so the idea that like we're expanding, we're not expanding anything. You're either gonna learn how to play this shit or you're not. Right. And if you don't, that's fine. You know, and it's hard to be a young person and really play this music well. Justin Faulkner is incredible. Mm-hmm. Your drummer and your quartet, yes, sir. But that's not why he's incredible. I mean, because he's in the <laughs> Well, you picked him, you put him in there. <laughs> but he's but he's exceptional. Mm-hmm. That's why I wanted him in the band. I knew he was exceptional. Mm-hmm. I could tell because he has a certain kind of intelligence, you know, and he can dissect information over time. He can grow into an understanding. And most people with his background, you know, great gospel player, great R&B player, they don't choose jazz. So the fact that he chose jazz, I said, oh, there's something wrong with him too. Okay, he can he can be a part of our craziness. <laughs> crazy then, crazy people music <laughs> the whole point was is that yeah you're going to have to learn this music from the ground up you're going to have to learn how to play like Joe Jones you're going to learn how to play like Sid Catlin mm-hmm. you know a bunch of jazz people might be impressed with you being like 18 years old playing a bunch of Tony Williams licks that, that ain't going to get it here and some drummers would say nah I'm good man no thank you and he said, okay. And it took him two years to get all of the information. And then it took an additional five for the information to start to develop into his mm-hmm. plan. Be more natural. Yep. Mm-hmm. So yeah. uh, it's like guys like that. I don't see that many guys and or gals like that, that like jazz enough to learn it from the ground up and are okay with sounding bad right now to sound good later. I think that the majority of them are trying to make a name for themselves now and are not really interested because the key to anything when you're talking about art is you have to invest a tremendous amount of time in acting its plays, in writing its books, in jazz, its jazz records, even in R&B. You have to invest in a lot of records that you cannot monetize. Mm-hmm. Like James Brown didn't grow up in a vacuum. There's music that he listened to. That's right. If you really want to be play like James Brown, then you have to go out and listen to to uh, uh, 
you know, evangelical music in the 1930s. The recordings are now around because of digital technology. Yep. Listen to that gospel group, the Sea Island Gospel Group from Georgia. There's all these things you need to listen to. But nobody really wants to do that. They want to mimic his success. They don't want to mimic his musical process. Mm -hmm. Rock and roll bands, instead of listening to the Beatles or the Rolling Stones or listening to Muddy Waters, guys that they listen to to get that, Mm -hmm. they're sitting in their rooms working on garage band trying to craft hits because they are trying to monitor. This is like they are trying to get a return, on a, a maximum return on a minimum investment. Mm-hmm. And I don't begrudge them that they're, they're in it for that reason. But too many times we try to conflate like the long view with the short view and say that those things are equal and those things are the same. Where the history of, of genius and art has shown time and time again that if it's really genius, the first reaction to people will be disgust. Van Gogh, like Van Gogh said. You know, Van Gogh oh. said, I, I did it for not the next generation. Like the next generation will understand Beethoven. pretty much in those words. Mm-hmm. Beethoven, Mozart, mm-hmm. Stravinsky, Charlie Parker. It wasn't like train. Wow, yeah. great. Mm-hmm. They were like, man, what the hell is that nonsense? The mm-hmm. longest month. I mean, you can go look uh, did, uh, Robin Kelly. Robin Kelly wrote a book on month. Yes. Oh, that's a All great bio- biography. The 40s were just vicious. Mm hmm. The guy doesn't know what he's doing. He's not a real bebopper. He's a stride player. Mm-hmm. Playing is all kilter, et cetera, et cetera. Because when music is a lot like sports to me, is that you have to know all of these things. But in the end, in sports, if you can't see, then it doesn't matter what you know. Yep. And because most of them can't see, that's how Patrick Mahomes was picked as a six pick in the draft and not the first pick in the draft. Yeah. And the reason that uh what's the coach's name in Kansas City? Oh Andy Reid. Andy Reid. And yeah. Andy Reid traded up to get him is because Andy Reid saw it. That's right. He was even like in the 10, I think 10 overall Mahomes or something. 10 or 12. Yeah, it's crazy. Mm-hmm. And Cliff Kingsbury, he said, who do you want? He said, Kyler Murray. That's right. Even though they had a quarterback. What did everybody say? Oh, man, the poor Arizona Cardinals, they're hapless. So they picked the number one draft pick, and now they're going to get rid of him and pick a guy who's even smaller. (laughs) Oh, my God, what are they thinking? But he could see it. They Mm -hmm. couldn't see it. Now they see it. Mm -hmm. Music is no different. You have musicians who have to know all of these things, but if you can't hear anything, it doesn't really matter in the end what you know. Yeah. And if you can hear it, then you know that most people can't hear it. Mm-hmm. So they are prone to not liking it because it doesn't remind them, it doesn't remind them of anything that they're familiar with. They don't have a comfort zone. So the hard part is to play complicated music but make it feel like simpler music. And that's what makes it hard. And when you have a group of people who are in love with complication for the sake of complication, there is a di- disconnect. Disconnect. Former in the audience. Yes. Because the audience people who have to work hard, raise kids and want to go out for a night and escape, they're not going to go take a damn harmony class to figure out what we're doing. <laughs> and if they yeah. do, then Facts. we have failed. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So 
you have a bunch of people who like certain styles of music that remind them of things they're already predisposed to like. So how do you cut through that? You know, there's, all, there's only so much you can do to cut through it. But one of the ways you can do it is through songs that have melodies that they can hold on to, playing with a level of intensity that is no longer associated with jazz, but used to be common 60, 70, 80 years ago. Wow. Truth. Wow. The great Branford Marcellus here on the 37th edition of Where They At. My name is Nabate Owls and, and Branford. Speaking of going back, you know, Ma Rainey, I had to ask you about that. You wrote the score because we haven't we haven't seen you scoring much since like like the late 90s, early 2000s. You know, so what what got you scoring that film for Ma Rainey on um, Black Bottom that's coming out on December 18th on Netflix and looks like it's going to get a lot of Oscar buzz for sure. The director, George Wolf asked me to do it. And, and there's no inspiration for me. I was in Australia working with a, a chamber orchestra. Mm-hmm. And he called me. And you know, I'm like, man, I'm not calling him from Australia. You know, I'll just, I'll deal with it. I'll be home in two weeks. <laughs> but then my manager called me the next day, no, the same day. He said, you know, did you get George's call? I said, man, so I'm in Australia. I'm like, that's a lot of money. <laughs> he says he wants you to write this music for this My Rainy Black Bottom movie. And they want to set up a conference call. I said, well, set it up for tomorrow morning. Evening for them, tomorrow morning for me. And he said, look, you know, we want you to do this. And I'm like, great. Well, what is, what's the timeline? He says, well, we need to record the music for the actors to practice to within the next three weeks. I'm like, wow, y'all always do this to us. Okay. <laughs> yep. That's, yep. So, that's- you know, it's just music always is at the end. Right. And 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 they music. Wouldn't, they, wouldn't, they wouldn't call Viola and say, you know, what are you doing in three weeks? We want you to be in this movie. Right. They negotiate right. that stuff months or years out. And then when music has to be communicated, the, you know, the filmmakers, I'm not talking for George C. Wolf, but I'm saying most filmmakers don't want to learn that communication of, of music and whatever. It's mm-hmm. your job to learn it, but I'm just saying you could give us a little time to say, you wanna, want me to find a singer play Ma Rainey in the next three weeks. So, okay, you know, I can't have national auditions. I'm in Australia. <laughs> so I called my buddy, uh, Bruce Hornsby. He recommended mm. uh, Max Ann Lewis, who was uh, in that movie, I think, 100 Feet from Stardom or whatever it's called. Okay. You oh, yes, on, 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 on background singers. So. I listened to her sing a couple of things and I said, yeah. And then I called all my guys in New Orleans and said, look, we got to do a session in three weeks, writing the music now. I'll send it to you as I get it. And, you know, that's what started it. So right then I started listening to a lot of 20s music just to get an idea of the sound in my head because the instrumental configuration, we were going to try to be as accurate as possible. Absolutely. Trumpet players play cornets. Mm-hmm. Uh, the saxophone players, it, it's New Orleans is the only city that I can think of where all the trumpet players actually have cornets available. <laughs> but uh, the, the saxophones, it's impossible to find those old vintage saxophones and get them to play well. So just, the saxophones were modern, you know, the trombones were modern, but the sound of the cornet to me was central. It's so different than the trumpet. Mm-hmm. And it's one of those things that makes the 20s sound different than the 30s. So uh, I just started the process. And a lot of the music that I've listened to over the last 30 years really paid off. Mm-hmm. So I kind of revved it up and then uh, wrote the early, you know, the music uh, in, in early uh, 20, in early 2019. And they 
film the movie in the summer and then finish the rest of it by early 2020, January of 2020, right before COVID. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Wow. And, and, and uh, about the film, you know, it features Chadwick Boseman, who plays a cornet player, which is really it's it's really eerie, you know, with me. I'm, I'm a fan of his work and and um, and we have like a connection to Anderson, South Carolina and everything. And it just it's just and I got to meet him, too, which is great and talk with him. And but it's just eerie to me that he plays a brass player, a cornet uh, player. Um, but but uh, talk about like the the performances, him and Viola Davis and, and also Glenn Thurman, underrated actors like him, you know, like the whole ensemble casting, how how that kind of helped you with scoring the film as you were watching it and everything. Well, their, their excellence didn't really help me because the story is the story. Ah, OK, mm -hmm. uh, the story was written by August Wilson, one the of great the August Wilson. Mm -hmm. And uh, it was adapted by Ruben Santiago Hudson. Yep an actor who if, if you could show people his picture then it's oh i've seen that guy before he yep. mm -hmm. in the public theater him and george c wolf that public theater joe's pub yep. right there yep mm -hmm. but in addition to that he does a lot of tv shows he's around you see him right. a lot right. and he wrote the, the screenplay and uh seeing the movie or the the, the they call them rushes but seeing all the scenes the movies, uh, the, I have to write music that captures the, in, the the energy that I see, you know, between the uh, the actors themselves, and they did a really good job of uh, choreographing their playing, so they look like they're playing. I had to work with that, you know, as a, as a consultant. I had to help them look their parts, with the exception of Michael Potts. Uh, was a great actor and he actually learned how to play the bass so he was playing all of his parts for real oh that's killing well but, you see mm -hmm. but, uh, uh, uh coleman domingo's trombone glenn terman on uh piano and uh, uh chadwick on cornet and it was they were incredible the, the 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 relationship between the musicians was stellar i mean between the actors was stellar and it was our job as musicians to kind of create a sound that was going to assist in mm -hmm. supporting the music. So it really has nothing to do with, it, it, again, I mean, most of my career, I feel like I'm a bystander. And uh, which I think is, is, is kind of my purpose in these situations. Mm -hmm. It's a support situation. It's not like, hey, look at me. I'm going to stand out now. I'm just trying to stay out of the way. Mm -hmm. Wow. And, and, and now speaking of that, you were involved in another process, musical film process 30 years earlier that really influenced a generation, influenced myself, you know, called Mo' Better Blues. And, um, you know, with with you playing all the sax parts that Wesley Snipes character, Shadow, Shadow Henderson, right? Yeah, Shadow Henderson, you know, and of course, Bleak Gilliam, Denzel, Terrence Blanchard was on trumpet and Tame was on drums, who actually acted in the film. And Bill Nunn, God Rest His Souls, playing bass, which uh, which was it was uh, Roger, Robert Hurst, right? It was Robert Hurst. Or, yeah, Robert Hurst. And then, of course, Kenny Kirkland on piano doing what Giancarlo Esposito was doing. So, um that process of Mo' Better Blues, you look 30 years later and it still has an influence on all of us today. Did you, looking back, like how do you look at it differently now than you did 30 years ago? 
I don't really look at it. Um, 30 years ago. I don't look, I'm not, a, I'm not a looking back person. Really. Uh, it was great. We had a lot of fun. Mm-hmm. Uh, it really did help me understand what I didn't like about actors whenever they play musicians is that their choreography is so jacked up all the time. <laughs> so I really, the thing that's really important because sometimes the actors will say, oh, well, I want to learn how to play the instrument. Well, you're not going to learn how to play the instrument but you're gonna learn these songs. You gotta sing these songs and sing the solos and learn them so that your fingers are not moving when no sound is being played. Right, right. You see a movie and saxophone plays, fingers are moving and there's no sound. It's like, really? Just some rudimentary work? Damn, I mean, try. Yeah. And uh, I think that uh, that experience really did help me with the guys with, with Myrene because like Strad piano players play from out to in. Mm-hmm. Uh, shoots Glenn was playing from in to out and I was like no 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 man practice this and then uh, the, the, the piano player Sean Mason who's 22 years old he's another up and comer it's going to mm-hmm. be incredible I said man just find a rhythm that works because it's for an actor so he had this rhythm where he would just play bump 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 in every song and just change the chords and I said Learn that rhythm, Glenn, and he learned it. So when you can see his body language, he looks like he's playing it. Mm-hmm. The important thing. That's mm-hmm. the stuff that's really important. So, uh, I mean, you know, Mo Better Blues was great. Yeah. It was a lot of fun, but I don't, I don't really, I mean, the only time I take strolls down memory lane, really, I listen to old music, but it's music I don't know. I don't keep going back and constantly listening to old things that I know, unless it's stuff that I haven't in my mind completed. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Wow. Well, and, and, and Branford and, and it's real interesting because with, you know, it was the same thing with, with Green Book too, with Chris Bowers with, you know, doing everything from Mahershala Ali. And I think it had a lot to do with Spike Lee, his father being a musician, you know, and him having that respect for the music and making sure that, like you were saying, having that, that credibility to actors really showing that they have that rudimentary work and they're showing that like that had a lot to do with it, right? Well, they wanted to do it. Mm-hmm. Denzel and, and, and uh, Wesley wanted to do it. Mm-hmm. They wanted to, and you know, drums was going to be hard because it was a modern jazz ensemble. So it was smart to get tame. Yes, right. <laughs> Rhythm <right>. Jones. <laughs> uh, and, uh, you know, Giancarlo often wanted to actually physically play the piano. So he was taking piano lessons. And I advised against it because it's just too hard to learn how to play. Yeah. So uh, he didn't really do the choreography work as well as he should have. So there's a lot of scenes where you don't really see him in the scenes. Mm-hmm. Because it's off. Yeah. Because he was trying to learn how to play the piano. I said, you can't. It's mm-hmm. going to take you five years to learn how to play the piano. <laughs> months. It's just, you know, a, a thing. But... uh. I mean, Spike gives you a lot of autonomy. Mm-hmm. That's one of the great things about the way he makes movies. He's not a control freak. Mm-hmm. And uh, the, it was up to the actors themselves. And Donald Harrison, uh, yeah. great saxophone player, he worked on it. And Terrence worked with the trumpet players. Uh, Kenny did some work mm-hmm. with Giancarlo. Uh, it was they. They all they they all wanted to do it the right way. It was it was cool to see. Yeah. God rest Kenny's soul. And um, 
I know that was your soul, brother, for sure. You know, yeah. yes, sir. Absolutely. Here with Branford Marcellus on the 37th edition of Where They At. My name is Nabate Owls. And Branford, I wanted to ask you about jazz education. Um, it's lost from the standpoint of the cult, the music and the black and black culture, what was going on, you know, like kind of early music with reconstruction, you know, and, and also how, how blacks were getting more ed educated and that helped be able to contribute to the, to the maturation of the music, that education and sense of identity. Then through the thirties, forties, fifties, sixties, civil rights movement, there was a, there was a, a tie to the music and that showing black intellectualism and everything. We don't have that now, you know, from the standpoint of like jazz, not really being, in, in, in schools, not the history is not really emphasized black history, not just music, but black history and the black writers and the black geniuses that helped and inspired the music. So what can be what is your take on what a jazz program should really be about and what they should be emphasizing for the music right now in 2020 and beyond? I think that the program is to identify the weaknesses of the musicians and deal with that because ultimately any of the work that's going to be done needs to be done by the musicians individually themselves. Yep, yep. I can't listen to the records for them. They have to listen to the records. And a lot of musicians, they just want to get some mathematical formulas. That's what they want. They're not really jazz fans. They're more fans of themselves. And, and they want to improvise. They don't want to learn jazz. Jazz is a special language. Uh, just like anything, no school can teach you how to play Baroque music. You have to do the work. You have mm -hmm. to listen to the people who do it well. You have to understand what the techniques are and you have to develop a certain kind of imagination that allows you to play that music. Mm -hmm. Jazz is no different. It was never the responsibility of schools at any point in time mm -hmm. to train. I mean, most of the black musicians in the 1920s and 30s were untrained. They all came from the South. They came mm -hmm. from the South. I mean, King Oliver's band was not full of trained musicians. Mm -hmm. And sacrifices. They sacrifice sacrifices that they had to deal with the KKK, all that stuff going on. And you like we would just I was mentioned about reconstruction, you know? Mm -hmm. black people to deal with that. Mm -hmm. Right, right. It meant it was tough being black. It was tough being a female. Mm -hmm. She wanted to stay home and raise children. The moment that you try to push yourself beyond that, it was tough. Yep. It was tough. And but like anything, I mean, I mean, most people just deal with the shit that they have to deal with to get through the day, mm -hmm. you know? And then we look back on it and say, well, if I was back in those days, I would do this. No, actually, you'd have done the same thing everybody else would do. <laughs> yep. <laughs> you know, you would have done the same thing, you know, or you would have been the guy that they hung, you know? So you chip away at the edges of, of this stuff. You know, and, uh, you know, like when we get these flashpoints, like George Floyd gets killed. And the most important thing is that large numbers of people, non-Black people in America, is like they see this thing for the first time. But when I saw that and I saw the groundswell of support for the Black Lives Matter movement, you know, I thought about, you know, W.E.B. Du Bois being spurned and, Plessy mm -hmm. versus Ferguson when this New Orleans guy, Plessy went all the way to the Supreme Court to fight for his rights as an American citizen and was told that he wasn't a citizen. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, um, 
what was the Dred Scott decision? Dred Scott, yeah, yeah. Yep. Where Supreme Court Justice Tawney said that black people are natural inferior beings who have no rights that any white man is bound to respect. Three fifths. You know, Three fifths. Mm-hmm. That really had nothing to do with black people. Mm-hmm. That was an argument between the North and the South. Right. And it was just a it was just a numbers game. Yeah, yeah, right, right. It didn't have anything to do with blacks or our condition or anything. It was just a numbers game. Mm-hmm. The Southerners who spent decades saying that we were not humans, once uh, the United States government settled on a form of government, and uh, the House of Representatives was going to be based on the population of the state. The more people you had the more representatives you had. So suddenly the slave states said, well, we need more representatives to perpetuate slavery. So we will now include these people that we said were not people prior to this time. And then the Northerners said, well, no, you said they weren't people. Now they're people. And the solution was, okay, each slave will be three fifths of one person. But the purpose was not really to declare that black people, like whether we were people or not. It was to, Prevent yeah. Southerners from over, like suddenly adding four million people to their population, so that they can have more representatives and have more pro-slavery legislation going through Congress. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So three fifths is, yeah, it, it's it's a little more. It's not. It's, it really wasn't. It was about us, but not really about us. Yeah, right. Of course, right. Which is how government is now, basically. You know what I'm saying? Oh, yeah. it's about us now. Yeah, <laughs> different thing, you know. Like you know, some like I tell my northern friends, and I was telling my kids that if you ever want to understand why the Southerners killed black people and hung black people, shot black people, burned down houses, drove people off of their land, it is because of what just happened in the election. The state of Georgia swung the election, mm-hmm. but what swung the state was the massive amount of non-white citizens who voted for the liberal cause. Now, the irony is that back then the blacks would have voted for the Republican cause because Abe Lincoln was a Republican, right. and mm-hmm. all the Southerners who are now Republicans were then Democrats. Yep. What they said was, if we don't do something about this, their phrase was, then they'll be the masters and we'll be the slaves. So if you think about people who have owned people and then suddenly they have to have their will being bent to the people they formerly owned because they are numerically superior. Hmm. So suddenly there were black governors, black senators, there was legislation, there were certain groups of whites, whites, who uh, formed bonds with blacks to create these unity parties and the regular old Southerners were like, we can't have this. Mm-hmm. So they worked out a deal with the government that they would turn the blind eye, they would get the soldiers out and then they would start killing them. Mm-hmm. Yep. So, I mean, it's one narrative to say, oh, they're just savages. Okay, that works. And emotionally, it makes you feel better, I guess. But the reality is that they did that to avoid exactly what we just saw in Georgia. Right. And you know they can't do that anymore. See, that's the progress. Mm-hmm. And so now it's just voter suppression. You know, you take all these counties and you make sure that they only have one 
of everything. One booth, one yep. Yep. They have to go 60 Discourage, miles. discourage people. Yep. You know, but the whole point is, is that it's up to you to take that challenge and do what right. those people did. That's right. Like Obama said, don't boo, vote. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The voting is the thing. And the people waiting out there for hours, you know oh. what I'm saying? Like, beautiful thing. Beautiful oh. thing. And so you, you really can't compare what's happening now to what happened then. I don't think it's a fair comparison at all. Mm. Mm-hmm. And uh, sir, like, um, so definitely like, yeah. And just to, just to come back to the question about um, a, what what's the curriculum? Like, because you said it's all about them learning how to play. So, but also too, like, it's important, right? For for especially because a lot of these programs would be a sound curriculum, a sound library. There would be certain numbers of songs that each musician would have to learn by ear and perform for me in the style of specific musicians. It wouldn't be a harmonic curriculum per se, even though that would still have to be involved. Mm-hmm. But you have a bunch of, I mean, jazz people are really smart people and they know harmony like the back of their hand. They just don't know how to play music. Mm-hmm. We're listening mm-hmm. to sound because anytime you have a song that you play, and a person is moved emotionally by that song. If you ask them why, they can't give you an answer. It's kind of like the whole political thing I was talking about earlier. Mm-hmm. Like no one's gonna say, well, you know, man, it's like when I heard you play that, like, you know, Lydian chord progression, oh, I just lost it. <laughs> That's right, no. It's not, it's not gonna happen. Yep. You're learning all of these things when the magic of music and it's a magic, you know? Songs can make you feel happy. Songs can make you feel angry. Like if you listen to that thrash metal stuff, mm-hmm. like joy through anger and aggression. Yep. You know, when you listen to the old, like, you know, like Teddy Pendergrass, it's all, you know, sensuality right. right. and sometimes overtly campy love songs, you know? And then the Isley Brothers, that was like the real smooth, sensual stuff. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? So. If you were trying to like, you know, score one with the ladies, you know, you didn't put on Funkadelic. <laughs> yeah. That wasn't gonna work. You put on the Isley Brothers. Mm-hmm. Make like a Stevie Wonder mixtape so all the slow jams are on it. Mm-hmm. Some Donny Half, you know, yeah. and Roberta. Yeah. Songs on <laughs> Not the ghetto, but you know. <laughs> right, right. Free, <laughs> I who have nothing. Mm-hmm. So, people respond to sound. Mm-hmm. But in music schools, we never talk about sound. We just talk about data. So when when you know, Joey joined the band, I'm like, man, we're gonna be, we're like music, we're like magicians. You know, like nobody remembers the name of these songs anyway. But if I walk on there and say, okay, this song's gonna sound happy, and it does, they're like, how'd they do that? Mm-hmm. Especially without words. Mm-hmm. Okay, this song is gonna sound really sad. How do you do that? I mean, that's the magic of music. Yeah. That's the magic where you can utilize sound to create an emotional effect on the listener. And you're not going to learn that by studying harmony. So the one thing that I would add to the curriculum is a massive listening class and force the musicians to talk about what they're hearing. Because most of the modern classes kind of emphasize, tell me what you know and not tell me what you hear. And hearing is an acquired skill. So Bradford, you know, growing up in New Orleans, 
you had the New Orleans Jazz, you know. I'm surprised Utah kept that name when they moved to Utah. I'm, I'm surprised, you know, but it has a ring to it, whatever, whatever. But, um, but I would never understand. Mm-hmm. I want to understand why they kept the name. Uh, mm-hmm. It was perfect for New Orleans. Yeah. They had the Mardi Gras uniforms. Pete Maravich was killing it. That's what I was about to ask you about how underrated that cat, how underrated he was, because he Steph, there'll be no Steph Curry without Pistol Pete. Am I right? Well, I don't know. I don't know how much Steph, uh, Pistol Pete Steph watched. I really don't. No. Right. But, uh, I mean, the times were more complicated. Because we were in that time where, you know, white players got undue amounts of praise. Mm-hmm. And, uh, White players were generally thought to be really smart, and black players were thought to be athletically gifted. So there was a lot of, I think, black resentment in the periphery, not in the league, because they had the players ass. And when he was dusting them, they were like, damn, what P can play. Yeah. But yeah. on the periphery, in the communities, you know, it was like, man, we tired of, you know, them giving all the props to Pete when they could be doing this, that, and other. I, and so I think that in the black community, Pete never got his props, mostly because of how the society, there was a societal imbalance in how black players were portrayed towards white players in the 70s, in the 60s. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think now a lot of players look at these things, they can't believe what he does now. I mean, you see it on YouTube and people are like, man, this guy was amazing. Yeah, you know? yeah. Uh, it was it it, it was uh, always interesting to me to hear uh, Brent Musburger and those guys oh, that cat. <laughs> talk about um, Bird and his intellectual gifts, which were real. Not arguing that point, but then they would talk about Magic Johnson and talk about what a gifted physical specimen he was. When this is a man who couldn't jump one inch off the ground, mm-hmm. right? He was six foot eight, and he jumped. Like that high off the ground. Mm-hmm. Clearly, yep. all of his gifts, other than his really large hands, his peripheral vision was an acquired skill. His court awareness was an acquired skill. That's right. Leadership, natural leadership. Mm-hmm. So, so we were, uh, as young black kids, you know, like, man, why is it always this? You know, why is it always like and, and but you know the reality is is now you turn on the television and they talk about LeBron's court awareness and you know IQ high high basketball IQ. So when I see what it is now, I'm not gonna hold on to whatever that baggage was from 30 years ago. But I will still acknowledge that it happened 30 years ago. But I'm not using it as evidence to anything. We're talking about it. This is what happened. So Pete kind of felt victim to like that kind of backlash because of the way that the society was at the time. Mm-hmm. But anybody that played in the league, you know, I never heard nobody say you couldn't play. That's, that's for sure. I Especially never heard anybody say. And, you know, and I'm at that age where I can talk to a lot of these guys because, you know, their careers are over and we go on golf tournaments and we talk. Mm-hmm. And man, he was just because he had gifts, man. He had skills that were insane. Yeah. Yeah. They were insane. And the Jazz, they didn't really stand a chance. Yeah. You know, they were playing in the Superdome. You can't have basketball in the Superdome. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like we had a team before that, the, the 
the New Orleans Buccaneers in the ABA. ABA. <laughs> and, uh, Loyola University had this little basketball arena called the Loyola Fieldhouse. And that was a perfect venue, but it was too small for NBA basketball. So they get this team. They have no arena. They have, the owners didn't have any money to build an arena. It was a football town. Yep. So it would be hard for them to make it unless they were winning, but they were an expansion team, so there was no way they were going to win. Mm-hmm. So the guy who bought the team bought him, moved the team to, to Utah. And right around that time, it was 75, I think, everybody was suddenly like, we want them around, keep them. So they had great attendance that year. And as soon as the year was over, they moved to Utah and kept the name. It's bizarre. Utah Jazz. But now, it's what it is. Yeah. That's right. their name. Nobody even blinks about it now. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And it's deep because also, too, like, um, you know, like with Superdome now, anything that goes like the Final Four is in the Superdome now. Pretty much that's it, you know, like because they want to, you know, money. But, 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 but you're not going to watch 41 games. Oh, absolutely not. <laughs> A one time event. I mean, it was too big. I mean, I went. I was like, this is ridiculous, you know. Mm-hmm. I didn't have to sit way up there, but it's just it's just a money grab. I mean, you make the event and suddenly, you know, if you can put it in the stadium and rig the stadium so that 65,000 people can go, I guess, why not do that? Mm-hmm. That's a once-in-a-year thing. Right. You know, NBA is like 41 games in a cave. Yeah. yeah. It wasn't, it wasn't a good mix. It wasn't a good time. Drew Holiday, what do you think? Going to the Milwaukee Bucks? You know, I know you're going to miss them in New Orleans. Well, uh, you know, Griff is a great GM and mm-hmm. good guy and too. Good guy. He's too. a good guy. And Drew is a consummate professional. And he was kind of like the, he was like the leader of the team, even when AD was here mm-hmm. and in community relations, he has this kind of ease and comfort with that. You could just tell that he loved playing. He loved being there. And he was kind of like the face of the franchise. Uh, when the whole thing started falling apart, when AD tried to uh, force his way off of the team, Drew became the face of the franchise, along with uh, Alvin Gentry. Mm-hmm. And uh, it was good of Griff to uh, give Drew the respect that he has earned and to find a place where he could actually win a ring now. Yep. You know, yep. and... Uh, didn't send him to some team that had no chance at it. I mean, Milwaukee, I mean, he extracted because, yeah, he, we got, you know, Bledsoe's going to be great, but they also got three first round draft picks. That's right. So, because because this is not a team that's going to win this year anyway. Not, they're going to be better than they were. I'm pretty sure of that. Mm-hmm. But they're, they're a work in progress. They're like a two or three year down the road kind of team. Mm-hmm. And those draft picks are going to come in very handy. And uh, it was just like, I think that uh, the Milwaukee, like Giannis had not re-signed yet because he wanted to see what the team was going to do. That's right. Because he knew that this team, the way it was constructed, was not going to be enough to get him there. Drew is a huge step up. Really does kind of make them the team to beat in the East right now. That's right. So, uh, you know, as Shakespeare once wrote, all's well that ends well. you know, Drew's from, you know, I think he's from L.A. Isn't he from California? Yeah, Los Angeles. Yep, Southern Cal. Yep. Mm-hmm. 
you know, he gets to go to a, 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 a city that's bigger than New Orleans, that has more uh, business infrastructure than New Orleans, and it's just down the street from Chicago. I mean, they'll find, you know, good schools for the kids and all of this other stuff. So I, I think it's a great fit for him. Uh, I mean, nobody in New Orleans can say anything bad about Drew Holiday. Nothing. That's right. I'm happy for the team, and I'm happy for him. Yeah. He's a good brother because I remember I was covering the NBA draft uh, for like um, like back like two three years ago, and when Aaron Holiday got drafted, Drew Drew such a good dude. He knows me by face, you know, gives me pound. And Justin is a good brother because I knew him when he was with the Knicks, you know, and they both introduced me to their parents. Like you know what I'm saying? I, I, I'm not friends, not close to them, but just very very down earth. The Pelicans they hired Stan Van Gundy. Uh, to take over. Yeah, talk about that move and, and what Zion needs to do in year two. Like, is well, there a lot of pressure on him? Knowing that I'm a fan and I don't know nothing. You, a, do, you do know. Come on. <laughs> I know things. But, you know, it's like, how many times you hear fans and saying, oh, you got to fire this guy. You got to fight. We don't know what's going on in, in the building. Mm -hmm. But uh, it was clear that, like, Brother Jeffrey's thing was the same as Paul West hit it. So his thing was pace, 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 pace. Yeah. Yeah. Don't even worry about defense. We just gonna outscore them. You, you, you can't outscore them if they're gonna play defense. Mm -hmm. And they scored a lot of points, but they didn't get a lot of wins. And now, now they're gonna have to play defense. I mean, they have some really nice young players. Yes, and indeed. I, I hope they hold on to them. Mm -hmm. I like Jackson Hayes, man. Ooh, length right there. I like him in, in theory. He played a lot more than he was supposed to. Yep. Zion got hurt. That's right. Mm -hmm. But he's a smart kid. He's not afraid. He needs to put on some weight. I'm sure he will be in the offseason. Mm -hmm. um, Brandon Ingram is killing. Uh, mm -hmm. You know, uh, and of course, Lonzo. Lonzo. Lonzo Ball is mm -hmm. up and down right now. You know, mm -hmm. he's up and down, especially having had a chance to watch Chris Paul play for the New Orleans Hornets. Yes. It's not, it's not that his shot is off, because shots come and go, really. Mm -hmm. It's just, uh, you know, his assists are, are, I think, not where they should be, especially what well, a lot of that had to do with Alvin, because he wanted guys chunking up threes and working, you know, and uh, they did fix his shot. He had that weird kind of yeah. short kind of shot. Right, right. You remember old Purvis short? Mm -hmm. Yeah, Purvis, of course. <laughs> yes, indeed. It wasn't working for him, and and uh, they got that right. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Playing a lot better. So I see, again, like I'm saying, if you think about it, it's not fair to really say that he wasn't playing defense and he wasn't really good with assists when he's being told to shoot. Mm -hmm. Yeah, You're open shoot. You're open shoot. You're open shoot. Mm -hmm. So a lot of that might have been a reflection of the, 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 the team philosophy at the time. Yeah. But I think Stan is a good fundamental coach. Uh, they're going to like him. His personality is going to, he's going to love New Orleans. It's, it's got <laughs> place for a guy like that. He's like your drunk uncle. He has that kind yeah. of. Yeah. <laughs> That's right. Town full of drunk uncles, so he's gonna be right at home. Yeah, and it seems like he's learned to kind of chill out because that was his problem with the Heat. 
That's what kind of got him because he had the superstars, the, a superstar like Shaq, who's the ultimate superstar. And then he had a young player in D Wade and he was like kind of annoying, you know, and getting, and that's why Pat Riley had to make the change. But I think he's, as he's gotten older and as you hear him commentating, he's just so, you know, he's so light and, and jovial and funny. So I think, you know, he's, he's definitely going to learn, you know, for this generation, you know, definitely. Well, it's, it's going gonna, it's gonna to be interesting. I mean, he has a pedigree, and, and the players will respect him. That that, that absolutely took took a Dwight Howard led team to the final. You know, like you know, Zion Williams, Zion Williamson, just a great kid. Mm-hmm. He's just a great kid. You know, he went to New Orleans, he signed the contract, and then he went to a park and started hanging out with kids in the park. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, when Anthony Davis signed, first time I saw him, he was in Harris Casino. <laughs> I know, I know that casino well. <laughs> nobody knew, nobody knew knew who he was. Mm-hmm. Just won the national championship, but New Orleans is not a basketball town, really. Mm-hmm. He's mm-hmm. in the casino, and everybody walking in. It was him, awesome. Austin Rivers, and one other guy. And I was like, "What's up, coach? Welcome to New Orleans." And like, yeah. Uh-huh. I mean, they were just yeah. up. wow. You know, I think. He's from Chicago. Mm-hmm. He's a big city guy, and all of a sudden he's in this little podunk town. He's like, "What the hell is this?" You know, and uh, this isn't what I really. This is not what I envision. Like, L.A. is perfect for him anyway. Mm-hmm. Yeah, right. But he doesn't have to carry a team, and that really works out to his advantage. I think that if he's ever put in a situation where he has to be the guy, he's he's not going to be as effective because it's just not his nature. Mm-hmm. Right. Zion, uh, Zion is from. Like, I mean, Spartanburg, 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 South Carolina. <laughs> he He's like, man, I'm home. I mean, it was that's just, right. Yeah, you know, the city took to him in a way that they never really took to AD. Mm-hmm. They never really took to him. Can he stay healthy? Can Zion stay? Can he get that conditioning no together? Everybody has a bunch of opinions on that. I'm not in his body. Mm-hmm. Like everybody talks about, like you know, he he was relatively healthy at Duke. I mean, you know, the one injury he had is when he exploded out of his tennis shoe. I mean, out of his basketball shoe. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, that was the one I was like, damn, this kid's stronger than Ox. He just blew up a, t- a basketball shoe. Yeah. Yeah. And Nike was panicking, of course, because, oh my God, we have defective shoes. The whole thing was kind of funny to watch because I, I was living here. Mm-hmm. And, and Nike flew it out. We're going to make a better shoe, we promise. And so, in front of President Obama, too. You know, yeah. like <laughs> people who have decided that a guy of his girth can't sustain themselves in the league. Okay, I mean, didn't they say a similar thing about LeBron? You know, mm-hmm. too much muscle, too much this. What about Carl Malone? I mean, you know, it's just like, you know, yep. I just don't know. That's the only body he's ever had. Mm-hmm. Everybody's saying you got to lose some weight. I, maybe he does. Mm-hmm. Maybe he doesn't. Charles Barkley didn't lose any weight. Didn't hurt him. Yeah, yeah, that's true. You know, and I'm just saying you have all these people with these really strong opinions, as though there's only one way to do any of this. And these are the same people that said Kyler Murray is too short to be a quarterback. Russell Wilson is too short to be a quarterback. Mm-hmm. A draft day. Seattle gets uh, Russell Wilson. 
in the first or second round. Don't recall. Exactly. Yeah, it was third, third round. Third round. Yep. Well, Mel Kuyper was screaming that they had wasted a draft pick on a backup quarterback. That's right, because uh, Flynn, Matt Flynn, was supposed to be the starter he know, is, for them. For Seattle. He's never going to be anything. He's a backup quarterback. And he's saying this with certitude, having never played a down in the national Yeah. Game. And guess who guess who loved Russell Wilson? Who who vouched from John Gruden vouched from and John Gruden knew he was gonna be great. John mm-hmm. Gruden can see that's my point. Mm-hmm. John Gruden works with quarterbacks, he was an offensive coordinator, he was a quarterback coach, he sees. Mm-hmm. But then you have all these other people that have all these opinions, me, you, based on nothing. Based on absolutely nothing. So my thing with, with Zion is I don't know if he's if he's too big, you know. So, but people are saying, yeah, he hurt his knee because he's too big. Well, he looks like he was the same size that he was when he played at Duke. Nobody said he was too big then. I just, you know, so we'll see how this all plays out. I mean, I've seen no evidence that he's not healthy. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, AD and those guys used to complain that the trainers in New Orleans team were the worst trainers in the league. So I guess that was true. And one of the complaints they had was that injuries that should have just been fixed continued to nag because the trainers were so inept. So then they went out and got this guy from Phoenix who was supposed to be one of the best trainers ever. So I don't really think, I think that all of these guys are going to show up physically fit and they're going to be limber and ready to go. I don't think it's going to be a problem. Then again, the reality is I don't know. Mm-hmm. And I want to add, there's no way to know any of this. I'm just, I respect all of their talent. I admire all of these guys because they're so damn better than everybody else. That's right. Who wants your team to win? Who doesn't want their team to win? But like, unlike a lot of people, I'm kind of emotionally invested in the Saints, but I'm more intellectually invested with them than I am emotionally invested. Mm-hmm. I'll scream at bad referees and bad calls. But I don't get twisted, you know, like I'm not going to sit on the phone line for 45 minutes to vent about an athlete who's a thousand times better than I've ever been. (laughs) Yep. Pass or, you know, they need to put this guy in. Okay, I've come up with a couple of trade scenarios. Tell me what you think about this. Dude, quit your damn job and go try to be a GM then. But it's like, you're going to sit on the phone. First of all, you're going to spend that hour concocting the trade scenario, reading data and all of that. Then you're going to call two sports guys and say, what do you think about my trade? I'm like, who are these fucking people? Yeah, they're not going to pay you. And they're not going to pay you. <laughs> Y'all got this much spare time, really? Mm-hmm. So I just, I'm never going to be that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, I watched the Saints play and it's kind of like the jazz thing. Like I tweet about the game, mm-hmm. but I don't put like, you know, hashtag who that or nothing like that. I just tweet, oh, you got to be kidding. And the people that know, know. And another people are like, who are you talking to? What is this? And I don't even explain it to them. I, just, <laughs> you know, I put happy faces or like, come on. Like, who are you talking to? This is frustrating to me. Mm-hmm. I'm like, if you know, then you know. Right, right. If you know, you know. If you don't know, it's cool. You did? I ain't throwing your lifeline for that. You don't care anyway. <laughs> it's Sunday at one o'clock. What do you think I'm talking about? If you mm-hmm. know sports, you know. And if you don't, eh. 
Right. Right. And Move on. Nothing to see. Go on. About your business. <laughs> I'm excited about, about, about the Pelicans this year. Mm-hmm. And Chris Paul, New Orleans legend. You know, who you talked about with the New Orleans Hornets going to Phoenix now. Finally, it looks like Phoenix can make that step up, especially by how they played the last eight games in that bubble. They were amazing. Yeah, I, you know, I, it's going to be interesting to see how he works with Devin Booker. Mm-hmm. I mean, Chris is a relatively smart player. He's a smart player. Mm-hmm. Yeah. He's a smart player. Uh he, yeah, I, I never really – how is this thing going to work out with James Harden and Russell Westbrook? And the answer is it's not going to work. So let's see if Chris will play like the elder statesman role. You mm-hmm. know, I hope he does. He's, he's, he's certainly athletic enough and smart enough to be a great asset to the team. I have a feeling they're going to miss Kelly Oubre. Mm. You know, Kelly Oubre's got That's skills. Right. Yeah. You know, my boy's got skills. And uh, but uh, it's going to be interesting to see how, how Phoenix does. I mean, you know, I don't, you know, they, they're going to be, you know, it's going to be, you know, they're going to be in the West. The West is always tough. That's right. And Monty, Monty, former New Orleans coach himself, Pelicans coach himself. Yeah, well, they just, you know, that was they should have never let him go. They just didn't want him. Right. I right. Mean, one of the complaints when the whole AD spilled out. The whole thing was just that we're just like second fiddle to the Saints. They had this weird setup where the GM of the team had to get permission to make transactions from the director of football operations. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You know, all this stuff starts coming out. Mm-hmm. And then, uh, uh, you know, Rita, Rita Benson, who owns the team now since her, her husband died, she stepped up. She said, they're all right. It's true. We should have never had that. We're going to change the culture. You know, and they got David Griffin in there. That right. immediately. That oh, yeah. Yeah. So, and everyone chance. answers to him. Mm-hmm. Everyone answers to him. Trajan Langdon is the GM. I mean, it's 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 a good situation. Mm-hmm. So everything is in place for them to actually have a competitive team in a place where people will want to play. New Orleans Saints, we got to talk about who that. Um, mm-hmm. and, and Sean Payton, you know, the legacy that he has put for that team. I mean, the longevity. It looks like he'll 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 never be fired. Everyone gets fired. Now everyone in sports gets fired. Everyone gets fired except Tom Landry, or, you know, or the Pittsburgh Steelers. They don't fire their coach. He'll fire their coach, right? But I think Sean. I think Sean ain't gonna get fired. I think I think he said for the, he'll retire. You know. <laughs> but it's another one of those those examples of what I say is that you know it doesn't matter what you know if you can't see. Mm-hmm. So. Uh, Jerry Jones has all these assistant coaches. And they say, well, we want to talk to Sean Payton. He's like, yeah, go ahead. Because my man is the one who got fired eventually. What's his Jason, name? Jason Garrett. <laughs> my name is Jason Garrett. Now imagine how different the Cowboys' fortunes had been had they kept Sean Payton and made him that coach. Lord have mercy. Yep. Yep. Imagine how different the Saints' fortunes would have been if the Miami Dolphins' doctors signed off on the deal to get Drew Brees to come to Miami. Imagine how different LSU's fortunes would have been because Nick Saban would have stayed in Miami. Mm-hmm. The main reason he left is like, you got to take chances in this league to win. And, and they weren't I doing take, it. I lost my quarterback because of some doctors who wouldn't sign off on the deal. 
and the Saints gave him $10 million, sight, sight unseen, just said, man, we're going to take a chance on it. And the yeah. chance off amazingly well. Mm-hmm. So it's like you look at all of these factors, look about how different everything has been. So, uh, I mean, I'm happy. The Saints have been uh, very entertaining to watch since 2006. They've been a blast, you know. And uh, this team is interesting because they can win really ugly. Drew is getting hurt a lot more. He's 41, and he's never been the biggest, tallest guy in the world. Right. You know, and uh, I think, yeah, it's, it's you know, he's hurting now. You can see the look on his face. I mean, you know, he, he there was no, like, silver lining in his voice as he talked about this. So I'm pretty sure this is last year. But I can't even imagine him going through this. He almost didn't come back this year. Mm, right. That's right. Especially after, you know, and then there was like that controversy, what he said and everything. You know, I think that that it was deep because I think that brought them together. That brought them closer because to have that conversation well, for him a, to understand. Perfect example. Mm-hmm. You know, Drew. Drew's home is in a very conservative New Orleans neighborhood. And. Let the football players say, yeah, we're brothers, we're brothers. And then practicing, and then everybody goes to their homes. Separate ways. And I think that when when you don't have people in your inner circle, that uh, don't immediately share your point of view, you never really hear a counter-narrative. So I think what Drew said was the same thing that he said on the golf course and in his neighborhood and all of the people would say. Mm-hmm. So when he finally got the counter narrative, he was like, oh, shit, yeah. I see what I said. I shouldn't have said that. I mean, I thought it was good for him. Like people were saying these things will break up the team. The reality is that you got all these people that are becoming free agents coming to New Orleans. They want to be on a winner. Mm-hmm. They don't want to be on a winner if if the guy you know if is, is is believes in equal treatment and fairness and all that great. But if he doesn't, if he's slaying that rock, that's how I felt all along. You know, everybody said, "Oh, this is gonna be trouble." So they're trying to win. Yeah, yeah. And they're tomorrow, trying, you know, I mean, you know, I think that if people got, you know. The guy who's in Indianapolis now, Philip Rivers, yeah. is the back at you and ass and had him say, they'd be like, what, what? He was at a like, whoa. And those nine kids, he got 10 <laughs> kids. <laughs> it's like, he's an extraordinary athlete. Mm-hmm. And they're paying him this money not to treat me with fairness. They're paying him to win games. So I will pay money to watch him win games. Unlike some people who are mad because, like, black dudes are kneeling, you know, mm-hmm. at the national anthem and they lose their minds, you know, like, I, and I still don't even know why. They, and then they say it's about the flag. Well, the truth is, is that he got, Colin got the idea from, from a former that. Green Beret who mm-hmm. was in Afghanistan. And once they give you that information, it's clear that it makes you uncomfortable on a far deeper level that has nothing to do with the flag. It has to do with something else. Yes. I don't know what that something else is. I suspect what it is, but I don't know. So that's for them to do. 
But the one thing I will say with certainty is that, you know, when people said that they voted for Donald Trump because of the economy, I don't believe that. <laughs> when you have people saying that they don't like these protests because it's, you know, they're disrespecting the flag, I don't believe that either. Yes. It's something right. else. Because, right. you know, um, there's a double standard that goes on there. Because my thing is, is that, all right, man, you have these people like Malcolm Jenkins. You know, Malcolm Jenkins feels very strongly about social justice. Mm -hmm. Great. Win games. Do what you want. That's right. Demario Davis, hey, he's big with social issues. He's an all pro. He wouldn't, you know, <laughs> so that's, that's right. You do your thing. <laughs> Lose games is a problem. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yep. Absolutely. If Colin was winning Super Bowls, do what he wants. People might not like it, but, you know, when they're paying that, you know, however much it is now, three, four thousand dollars a year, five, whatever it is, the season tickets, they can let all that go if you go to the Super Bowl. That's right. Winning, you know what I mean? <laughs> I'm raising a Republican. Everybody knows that. Yep. You know what? It's about winning. At the end of the day. You know, at the end of the day, that's, that's what this thing is about. Wow, that's what it's about. And then you have other people who don't like football, who are like I'm, you know, like I'm never gonna watch football again. Like you don't watch it now, you know. And then last year it was, you know, for Colin. You know, you're gonna watch him. Like, yes, I'm gonna watch. After what they did to Colin, I say, man, when you. When you have a, a fan base in some of these places where 75% of them, the, the fans, are Republicans, you know, strident Republicans, if you're going to piss them off, you have to win. Yep. You have to win. And then I'm sitting in the barbershop and I'm like, oh, no, so man, he wasn't winning. Mm -hmm. Social positions are great if you are winning. And then... Yep. One guy says, well, think about all them second string white quarterbacks, and he's better than them. I say, yeah, but they keep their mouths closed. Yeah. If you were going to spark these people, which I have done plenty of times on my own, you got to deliver the goods. You know, when you start talking all this extracurricular stuff past the thing that they're paying you all this money to do, you got to win. Yeah. Yeah. And Colin wasn't winning, unfortunately. That's what, yeah. And the NFL was wrong with how they treated him. Oh, absolutely. Because yeah. Colin was right about all of the things that he said. But you got to win. Yep. I yep. mean, that, that's that's what this thing is. You got to win. You know, and when you're winning, they'll put up with Terrell Owens' antics. <laughs> that's right. Cam and all his eccentricities. Wearing boas and hats and Superman and all this. <laughs> all that shit is cool. Yep. You ain't winning. It ain't cool. Yeah, right. At the end of the day. The I end mean, of the day. Me personally, I'm not a person for all that kind of stuff. But if you winning, I'm cool with mm -hmm. right. it. You need to win. Go do that. And win. Mm -hmm. But if you're doing all that and you're losing. Nah. Yeah. And like Charlie Finley, the great Charlie Finley. He was winning. It was all good. The owner, you know what I mean? So. 
he got all those ruffians together. <laughs> Oakland A's, they were yeah. all a bunch that's, of lunatics on one team. That's but, right. That's right. Three P. Martin <laughs> brawling, getting drunk in bars and fighting people. But he won. That's right. Yep. I mean, I remember, I mean, I sat at the bar with, with him one night. Woo. Billy Martin. Wow. <laughs> I mean, you know, and I, I'm a baseball fan, so we just talk baseball. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But throwing him down. Yeah. And he loved baseball. And yes, he sir. loved drinking. <laughs> you know, he was just, but uh, it was just one of them things where baseball was amazing. Like, the, you know, the world champs. And you in a hotel, and they all hang out at the bar, and like nobody knew who they were. Wow, that's deep. That's the and even now, even now, no one knows who the cats are. You know, that, like that's kind of nice, man. Yep. Unless you want the attention, but I mean, to me, mm-hmm. I was like, you know, hitting home runs and getting MVP and getting paid, and just like having a life. Like you could just go to the grocery store, and mm-hmm. that must be great. And guess what? And you get guaranteed money and long term contracts. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, there's a caveat there. <laughs> <laughs> money if you can play. I want to play you something by someone that is a mutual acquaintance of both of us. Oh, here we go. In Barcelona, the security was very high, so they had the, they had the hotel surrounded by the police and barricades, and so we didn't really get a chance to get out much. So for Branford to be able to come over there, we actually went up on the roof to um, just to have a little quiet jam session and. Um, and he was he was so gracious with me, <laughs> considering I couldn't couldn't play much. But we when we just we, you know we formed a bond at that point, and um, and I've seen him on several occasions since. As a matter of fact, a couple of years ago he came to San Antonio, and did a uh, did an event here, uh, a master class that I went to and got a chance to sit and talk with him a little bit. But uh, but man, he, he's just a phenomenal uh, musician and and even a better person. There you go. That's my he's a great guy. I mean, he really. And he's talking about he couldn't play well. You know what? He wasn't in Barcelona to play the damn saxophone. <laughs> That's right. He was there when that gold. And he, when was there, he was there for a whole different reason. So it didn't <laughs> matter that he couldn't play the saxophone. I was just like, man, this is, yeah, man, I'm, I'm happy that it was great. You know, my girl Leah Wilcox hooked that up. That's right, NBA. Mm-hmm. She was like, you know, hey, you know, come do this thing, man. You know, we're going to put you on a, I can't remember, what did they call it? There was the name for the show back then. Oh. Uh, Remember there was a show, it was an NBA produced show. Ahmad Rashad did Oh, uh, Inside Stuff. Yeah. Inside. Mm-hmm. Him and Willow Bay, Willow Bay. Yep. yep. <laughs> on Inside Stuff, I'm like, damn, really? What I gotta do is say, come jam with David. Done. <laughs> Done. Yes, indeed. Well, it, being a friend of the NBA, you know, it, it's great because I mean, playing the national anthem, you've done, and also New Orleans. You, you know, when it goes, when it comes to New Orleans, you perform and everything. So oh, it's was, a beautiful thing. That, that was actually hilarious because <laughs> that's a good story because I'm I'm old, so seasoned, not old, my brother, seasoned. <laughs> no, I'm, okay, I'm old and seasoned. Chickens are seasoned. I'm old. So, so they called this switch in the NBA game, uh, the All-Star game in New Orleans, and they want to do this whole pregame halftime show. They want to focus around the music. Mm-hmm. And I don't remember the guy's name. And it's actually good that I don't remember it because he was kind of high up on the entertainment thing. Okay. And he was talking like, you know, how are you going to do it? I said, I'm going to call some guys. We're going to get, you know, like nobody had ever heard of Trombone Shorty back then. 
See, we got this guy down here, Troy. His name is uh, Monica Trumbull Shorty. He's going to be great. Kirk Ruffins will be great. It's going to be cool. It's going to be great. Mm -hmm. I'm on the road. And he would send me messages saying, well, man, you got a track I can hear? I'm like, no, man, he's a real musician. He's no track. I'm on the road. And he says, says, well, you know, we went to Houston last year and we had Beyonce. I said, I don't even know why that's relevant. Why are you telling me that? He says, well, you know, it's like the track was too long. And we, I said, man, we are using real musicians. I'm like, but this is what I'm saying. I am so old that the idea of using real musicians on an NBA halftime show is like 15, 20 years ago. So when they do these shows, everything's click track, tracks are known, then no variables. Mm-hmm. It's all rock solid. You're going to sing this long. If the song is, you know, if the song is edited to be three minutes, it's going to be three minutes every time. We're going to rehearse it. It's going to be three minutes. Mm-hmm. Now there's all these variables. What do you mean there's no track? So man, they're going to come in and play live. And we get to New Orleans and the guy's like, you know, I'm going to lose my job after this, man. I said, boy, I'm about to make you you're going to look good as hell. You, just don't, <laughs> you don't even know. Because when I set aside three hours of rehearsal, I said, this shit ain't going to be longer than 45 minutes. And he's mm-hmm. literally like panicking because he listens to contemporary music and contemporary music is played with samplers and drums and drum machines and yep. beats and digital audio workstations. And he just doesn't. So the guys come and they're 10 minutes late for the rehearsal. He's like, and they're late. And they're late. I'm like, <laughs> You're like, ah. So the guys show up and I'm like, man, Kermit, what song you want to do? He says, I got this song called Take Me Back to New Orleans. Great. Shorty, what you want to do? Man, just pick a song. So there's this song that was like a big New Orleans hit called Do What You Want. Okay. I said, so, and, 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 and uh, it was Kermit's old band. See, and uh, of course, I can't remember the name of the band now because, you know, I'm getting old. There's another one. Plus, it's, it's, it's another band from that Soul Rebels, but it wasn't a Soul, Soul Rebels. And uh, Kermit's old band, they came in and we talked it through. All right. Mm. Play one chorus of this, one chorus of that. And then Trombone Shorty's going to come in and he's going to play. And then we're going to switch over to Kermit's song. And they learned all of the tempos and the things cool. And my man is pacing back and forth. And I said, All right, man, we're only going to do this shit once. You ready? He said, I'm ready. I've been ready. So it starts. <laughs> And we start this thing from the beginning to the end. Mm-hmm. And it's perfect. And it's over. And he goes, I, I don't believe what I just saw. I said, man, I keep telling you, you play instruments. It's not what you're used to. You're not used to real musicians anymore. It's like you. So he wanted everything to be controlled. And it's like, mm-hmm. you know, and then how is it? Temp- tempo-wise, you need more time or less time? Because we can just speed the song up and then it'll be fine. It's going to be fine whenever you do it. He was like, oh, this just happened. I said, don't worry, wait till the night. And, you know, the band is playing and like, you know, LeBron is dancing and acting a fool. And yep, I mean, it was, yep. just, it was just, you know, and uh, then everybody saw Trombone Shorty and a year later, everybody, I mean, Trombone Shorty just blew up. Yeah. Blew up, blew up and, and then Harry did the halftime show. Yeah, it was fun, but that was kind of like a one-time deal. It wasn't like, you know, oh, they're going to get us because, you know, it's for young people. It's a young people's thing. Yeah. I mean, I'm outside the target audience of who they want. So when they want people to stay and watch halftime shows, they're going to get people in their 20s and their 30s, not people in their 50s. I get mm-hmm. that. 
but it was good. It was fun. It was fun, fun to do that. Yeah, that was good. That was fun. Wow. Because I, I did the All Star game with uh with Bruce Hornsby way back. That's right. National during anthem. The, yes, sir. During the Rock War. So it's like two thousand three. Mm-hmm. You know, and I did it again in like twenty seventeen or whatever it was, and that's pretty much that's it. That's yeah. Gonna be- and I was there 2017. I was there. La- last question for you. Who you want to collaborate with? Who you I never don't collaborate with anyone? Mm. You know, I never have. It's like they all of these words get used out of proportion. Oh, well, who you want to play, play with? That's just create right. music with. Mm, no, okay. Okay. Because you play, play with so many folks. So yeah, that's what. Play. Mm-hmm. I, didn't say, I didn't say, hey, Sting, you don't know me, but you should hire me, bro. Mm, okay. He said, hey, man, you want to play this thing? I'm like, damn, that sounds interesting. Yeah, we should do that. But see, the thing is, is that, and then people say, well, you know, when you were collaborating, I said, no, man, he told me what to do, and I did it. If I had an idea that I thought was better, I would say, what about this? Now, it's up to him to say yes or no. Collaborations are like peers. Uh, uh-huh. It's not like, yo, Sting, man, I got a great idea for a song. He's like, great, man, let's flesh that out. He writes the songs. We interpret the song. And if he doesn't like what we're interpreting, we got to do something else. We got to find something else. He's the boss. Dig. That's deep. That's deep. Yeah, I didn't. Right. Mm-hmm. That's mm-hmm. just what it is. And I guess, you know, people with fragile egos, they need that. And they try to say, oh, man, you know, you collaborated with all these people. You know, in, in World War II, collaborators got shot. So, you know, it's just like, I just don't, you know, I don't. It's just I get hired to do a job and I try to do my job to the best of my ability. And that usually requires me to contribute and stay out of the way. And, you know, when I was playing with the Grateful Dead, I think they thought I wanted to do all these big, long, rambling solos. I went, no, I'm good. And I just played the sound. Mm -hmm. Like I get in these situations and I play the sound. That's what it is. I just play the sound. I don't impose my own conceptions of innovation on the environment. I play the sound. And I have enough of a sound vocabulary over the amount of years that I've been, I've been playing music since I was 12, mm-hmm. professionally. Mm-hmm. You know, playing in nightclubs when I was 12, playing in an R&B cover band. So I know that sound. I listen to a lot of rock and roll, I know that sound. You know, bluegrass and folk music, I know that sound. I mean, so you learn these sounds and then when you're playing, you play the sound. You don't just have these two or three things that you do and everybody knows it's you and you just impose them on every situation. So I don't really think of myself as a collaborator at all, but it sounds prettier because it creates a, a, a certain kind of false equality. Like we're on level playing field and we get together and decide to do this thing together. And it's just not, you know, mm. Wow. The singer is here. Saxophone player is here. I got no problem with that. So, no, there's no one, really. There never has been anyone. My job is to practice and get better, you know, listen to music that, listen to music that inspires me. And if the phone rings and there's something that sounds interesting, yeah, I'll give it a whirl. If it's not, I'll pass. Mm-hmm. Wow. Nice. And, the, and the younger people, they don't know who the hell I am. That's just nature. That's life. Well, well, you know, I don't know. There are more young cats that know who you are, sir. Than, <laughs> I'm just that saying. Play, that play jazz, sure. Mm-mm. But like those Sting collaborations, like, you know, Harry Styles doesn't know who the hell I am, and nor should he. Mm-hmm. 
mm. different worlds and different times. Mm. You know, that was that was perfect for its time in that moment. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, I was 30, 25, Sting was 35. Now I'm 60. I don't even know if I want to play with people who are 40 years younger than me. I mean, I don't know what they would have to offer me. And I definitely don't know what I have to offer them. So I'm fine with things the way they are. I'm good. I got no problem. Wow. Well, sir, Bradford, I know you got to go. I appreciate your time here and where they at. It's such an honor to speak with you, such an honor to know you. Um, and I really appreciate all the knowledge that you dropped on this show today. Thank you so much. Talk to you later. Yes, sir. And, and Pop says hello. Dad says hello. Yeah, tell him I said hey. Yeah, please. absolutely. All right, bro. Thank you all for listening to the 37th edition of Where They At. My name is Nabate Isles, and I had the honor to speak with the great brand from Marcellus. Iconic musician, composer, definitely one of the great saxophonists to ever live, for sure. And, and his knowledge and wisdom is, is just it speaks for itself. What a powerful individual for sure. So it's great to have him on the 37th edition of Where They At. If you want to listen to other shows of Where They At, which features mostly retired athletes, but I have to diverge sometimes and I have to speak to geniuses like Chuck Dean, like Brad from Marcellus, um, make sure you check out the show on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Amazon Podcasts, iHeartRadio, Stitcher, uh, and make sure you subscribe and our rate. That's important. Make sure you subscribe and, and you can be able to be updated on future episodes. And uh, you can check it out too on Contropolis Radio Network, which is C-A-S-T-R-O-P-O-L-I-S dot net, Contropolis dot net, as well as my, uh, my podcast is streaming on their platform. And if you love the music, check me out, N-A-B-A-T-E, isles.com that's nabateals.com you can hear sounds from my album eclectic excursions and you can be able to download it and or stream on all the digital music platforms like spotify title apple music google play amazon music etc etc for sure so thank you all for listening to where they at once again my name is nabate isles and be blessed be safe stay woke and make sure that you be kind to each other that's really important because uh this nation is too divisive right now not everyone could be in common ground but just communicate and have respect for each other we're all human beings at the end of the day take care everybody have a blessed one bye-bye